Good morning to our listeners, on the menu listeners, here and around the world. Uh, we hope that you all had a peaceful Christmas, a stay-at-home Christmas. And uh, uh, with that in mind, we're going to bring you today uh, two almost travel uh, books to help you have a, a scene of having escaped. You're listening to On the Menu, of course, with Ann and Peter Haig. And let's launch right in with our good friend uh, who we've interviewed before. You may imagine Asha Gomez, who has a really wonderful title for her new book called I Cook in Color. Asha Gomez, you honestly, you say I cook in color is the name of your book. And uh, <laughs> the book is so colorful that it's it's delicious just to leap through. Um, congratulations. We last Thank you talked so to you. Much. Oh, you're welcome. And we last talked to you when you wrote um, a book called My Two Souths, which yes, referenced. Yes, I recall. Your, yes, it referenced your background being born and, and raised in the south of India, and then your moving to the United States and uh, living and working in the south of the United States. And it's very, that was very clever. Um, but, you know, this one is puts a, a spotlight on something else. Is it, you travel the world collecting food ideas and recipes, I- don't you? Yes. So for me, you know, I grew up in India, yes, but I left India when I was 15 years old. I turned 50 this year. So most of my life has been lived outside of India. I've called the U.S. home now for 35 years. And um, I think as an immigrant chef, especially a first-generation immigrant chef, I've always felt very um, – boxed into only being able to cook the cuisine or expected to cook the cuisine of my ancestral kitchen, my grandmother's kitchen, my mother's kitchen. And um, nobody thinks that I can make anything outside of Indian food. Um, The assumption is that. But, you know, I've been making a marinara sauce in my kitchen for 20-plus years, but I won't get asked for a recipe for that. (laughs) And so I'm hoping that this book um, breaks that stereotype of um, boxing immigrant chefs into being able to cook only one type of cuisine. Right. And um, I guess today everybody's talking about um, uh, stealing other people's cuisines, but you you always add, you don't just take, you always add something to to the food you're acknowledging, right? I think that's the topic, yeah. When it comes to appropriation in food, I am a strong believer that food is universal. It needs to be shared. It needs to, you know, there is no stealing. I think if you show reverence to a recipe or a dish and show reverence to the origins of which it comes from, and then you make it your own, isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that what brings the world just a little bit closer uh, for me, I know in my home and my kitchen how I teach my son about the world in so many ways is through food, is through my kitchen, it's through my dining table, it's through the food that I cook and put on a plate. And I feel that I'm able to introduce him to so much more of the world 
through that experience of food and teach him empathy and compassion toward cuisines, uh, toward cultures all over the world. So, well, he's a, a very lucky young man. I mean, he's, he's had experiences most kids are never exposed to. Yeah, right? I, he has traveled. I want you quite to be my mother. Can I sign up? Absolutely. We'll take another kid in this house. Yeah. He's had a good ride for way too long. Yeah, especially, especially as I really love Indian food. Oh, yeah, well, this is yes. this is all kinds of food. All it's, kinds of food. So the idea of the cookbook was, you know, cooking in color. It's a universal global approach to food on any given night. In my kitchen, I'll be making a Thai papaya salad. On another night, I'll be making a quick chicken fur at home. On another night, a quail ragu. On another night, uh, Catalonian paella I learned when I was in Barcelona. Some nights I'm making a fish head curry from my mother's kitchen in Kerala. So really, the book encompasses my life, you know, and my life experiences, the kitchens I've eaten in, the kitchens that I've been fortunate enough to travel in and be in. And so it's just bringing the world just a little bit closer together through my kitchen. Well, I love that you open with drinks. Usually people sneak those in at the very end of the book. <laughs> you talk about colorful. Ooh, these are gorgeous things. I mean, I want this virgin, fresh tomato, watermelon, Mary. I mean, because it's, so, it's so gorgeous. Thank you. But you, you like to uh, juice a lot too, don't you? I did for a long time. That was an avid juicer, especially while I was writing the book. I was eating one meal and juicing the rest of the time. And so, and I do, you know, as much as I love the leafy green juices. For me, it was really about so much. My favorite combination is just orange and cantaloupe, and then I throw a bunch of spinach in there. It's just so delicious with some ginger or turmeric. Um, so I love fruity juices. <laughs> I like this fig and cashew milkshake. That's one of those. Yes. So that's very, um, you know, I grew up in a culture where dried fruit was a huge part of the cuisine. Um, And so, you know, just rehydrating those figs and throwing them into a milkshake, people don't realize how delicious it can be. So hopefully they'll try now. Uh Yeah, let's. Tell me this. Does this all-day herb water really work? Which, what water? All-day herb water. Why don't you talk to our listeners about what that is? And you say it energizes you. The herb water, yes, yes. So, you know, my kitchen is full of herbs. I grow herbs find bunches of herbs for my cooking and I just literally I literally just take a glass of water a, a pitcher of water fill it with herbs and then in the course of the day I'm drinking that herb water and as I'm drinking it you know every hour on the hour the water intensifies more with these amazing herb flavors and then at the end of the day I'm using the herbs for my cooking so it doesn't go to waste but for me personally, it, I find it very rejuvenating and very energizing. You think it would be for me because I could use a little of that? <laughs> if, you, if you like herbs and you like the scent of it and you like the taste of it in your, on your palate, it's absolutely a delicious thing because 
you're literally then able to use those herbs at the end of the day toward cooking something. Now, if, if you're using wasted. if you're using uh, the uh, you know what what do you what's the herb you use to make pesto? Sure. Basil. 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 I mean, can, can yes. you can you put can you put the leaves can you put the flowers in as well as the leaves? Absolutely. Because well, we the flowers are we have all a, going to seed. We have a, we have a, we have a surplus of, of flowers. You have well, flowers. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. been a horrible garden season for us here. I don't know what it's like in Atlanta, but it's been horrible. It alternates between heat and drought and. And, oh. uh, searing heat and everything's turning brown and uh, so we've, not, we've had a pretty good growing season, I must say. This was bad. Good, good, good. Yeah, I like your pretty and pink rose milk. Yes, I grew up drinking that. Grew up the, um, but you know there was no strawberry um, milk for us growing up. What we had was rose milk growing up. It's, actually rather delicious. It's a drink called Ruabza, <clears throat> and you put uh, basil seeds in there as well. There, there's also a dessert that's made with it, so you make a milkshake with it, and then you can add ice cream to it, so it's a fantastic drink. But you need that particular syrup, and I explain in the book where you can get it from. Right. So you have a, a chapter on salads, and they they look better than most salads I've ever looked at, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. more, more color. And, and, and again, you jump around. I mean, here's a Thai green papaya salad. I and then it. you I jump back to um, a Bombay boiled peanut salad with black salt. I mean, this yeah. is very exotic, isn't it? It's, it's, Peanuts it's, are part of Indian cooking or not? They're part of the they're South. part of Indian cooking, but there's all, they're also a huge part of Southern cooking here in the American South. They certainly are. We once recorded at the uh, uh, Charleston Food and Wine Festival the man who sold uh, boiled peanuts, and he would walk around singing about his peanuts. <laughs> I wonder if we still have that. I think he's passed on. Um, you speaking of which, I mean, you you shared a friendship um, with with uh, us with Floyd Cardoz, right? I did. He was a very dear friend. I can't friend stand it. I hate it. Yeah, I mean, and his uh, life are very near and dear to my heart. Um, my, that was a breaks tough my one. heart. Yes. So, anyhow, that was um, very difficult for so many of us. Um, who, you know, so much of um, what Indian cuisine is today in this country, the oak to Floyd Cardoz himself. Exactly. There's a tremendous sense of reverence that all of us who are in the food realm have toward him. Right. It just didn't seem right. I didn't think it was fair. I'm one of the decent human beings. Anyhow, um, you have a... a unusual salad here called crying tiger grilled beef salad now that has a long history right yes so it's essentially just taking a 
cheap cut of beef and making it into something fantastic. Um, you know, I have someone very near and dear in my life, Faye Poon, who is, she's like my sister. She's originally from Bangkok. And I get to see her at least two, three times a week. And so I'm exposed to Thai cooking, authentic Thai cooking in my home constantly. And so many of the dishes that are Thai-inspired are really a homage to her and my relationship and what I've learned from her. So, yes, that has a beautiful Thai dressing on it. You're a very loyal person, I must say. I see that through your comments throughout the book, um, that sense of loyalty you have. Um, Thank you. you. You also, you like Italian cuisine, which is what I was raised on. And I looked it's at this one of my salad. Pardon? It's one of my favorite cuisines in the world. Well, I, I, I thought literally... it was funny you said you like the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the salt-free bread in Florida. It's <laughs> one thing I couldn't stand. <laughs> I um, travel to Rome often um, because I just love the cuisine so much. And one of the main reasons I go is because I get to eat all this yummy food when I'm there. Um, so, yeah, I have, like, a quail ragu in the book, a beautiful shrimp dish that's very Italian-inspired. But on any given night, <laughs> I probably well, you know I, I looked at this more often than I do Indian food. This, my grandmother used to make fish head stew. I've never seen a <gasps> recipe before in my life. And I remember my paternal grandmother making it. And, and, yeah. and never, never before since I had it. You made it once for me. Did I make it once for you? Fish heads, grouper heads. No, this is this is not like that. That oh, was okay. roasted. That was roasted. Oh, yeah, we okay. had we had grouper head stuffed with crab meat, seasoned crab meat. <laughs> Oh, my gosh, that sounds delicious. It was wonderful. Peter wasn't quite it was, ready for it. Was, it. <laughs> it wasn't so good to look at. <laughs> it, 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 tasted, it tasted good, but I said, I said, sweetheart, don't make that again. <laughs> I loved it. I mean, it was really, it's really a tasty. That, that's, like the pig's, that's like the pig's head you almost bought when we were in, yeah. when we were in Geelong. Yeah, well, I'm yeah, all those pig cheeks and the pig ears, and I mean, yeah, we've had pig ears for our nose to tail cooking. It's such a beautiful way to have reverence for the animal, isn't it? If you must eat meat and fish. Yeah, we've been eating, and I guess we'll have some tonight again. Do we have? Yeah. We have last night. We're, we're having it, we're having tongue we're having tongue again tongue. tonight. I think. Aren't we? Yeah, Peter Peter makes so a that, killer tongue. I, I, noticed, I, noticed you, I noticed you had liver in there, and yes, funny, I, rem- I remember we, we were in a restaurant in London called, called Amaya, and uh-huh. one of the first dishes they served was liver, and I said, well, boy, I didn't know that Indians ate liver, but apparently we it's do. very prized that everybody likes it. It's like literally nose-to-tail cooking for us. I not no part of the animal was not ingested you know, made into something delicious. Every part of the animal was used. So, and I love, I think we're in a time where I don't see liver that often. And so it's just a smothered liver with braised cabbage. It's such a delicious recipe. 
Yeah, I saw. I saw. We, I, we, we can't. We, we don't get it very often either. But sometimes we do. And uh, one, one of the things I do that you did, you, you sort of do the opposite, which is you slice the liver. I, I cook it whole. And then slice it. Well, and then you just cut cut pieces of it when you're serving it. Ah, okay, got but it. it. But it, but it, but it goes, goes, goes to the table complete with slices of bacon on top of it and, nice. and, and, fry, and fried onions. Sounds delicious. Another dish in this book. You should, try really tongue, you should try tongue sometime. I love tongue. A we just, we just, we, tongue on a taco. There's nothing quite as delicious. Uh, well, well, I, I, I cooked, I cooked them in twos. So I cooked two tongues about what was it, ten days ago? Mm-hmm. And, and we still, we still have some left. We're having it, we're, we're having it left over for dinner tonight. Amazing. Well, I mean, we didn't, we froze part of it. I mean, we didn't right, jump yeah. sitting around for ten days. <laughs> now, here's a question. Um, this looks absolutely amazing. The seed crushed the whole roasted cauliflower. And um, and uh, who was it who did the um, uh, the chef in, in New Orleans who did it? Um, the oh. Israeli chef who did the Alan Shaya. Alan Alan Shaya did one yes, of his pizza ovens. Yeah, and he did one, and, and I've never been able to get it to work. Now I notice but you I do. Think, yeah, you you actually brine yours. To boil, yes, you boil it first and get it part cooked before you roast it. Okay. All right. And then I slather it with lemonade yogurt, and then do a seed crust on it and roast it. It's absolutely a showstopper. And yeah, I'm doing that. That one's idea. definitely yeah. on my list to do. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Hmm? I said I'm glad to hear that. Oh, yes. I mean, I hope it works out. And another one that I'm, I'm definitely trying going to try is, I don't even know how to pronounce this one, Persian, Fezzan, chickpeas with spinach. Yes. How do you pronounce that? I love anything it's, Persian, it's anyhow. Such a, it is such a unique tasting flavored dish. It, even for me, it's unlike anything I've had before. And it's a very celebratory dish in Persian cuisine. Um, you should definitely try it. We're making that. We're going to get the ingredients for that one. Um, you know, I, the very fact that that you have collected all these different diverse um, um, cuisines. Um, I mean, just the very fact of it hits on something very important today, um, which is an issue of diversity, which crosses over into diversity in um, uh, dishes, in uh, culinary traditions, uh, in uh, kitchens, uh, in staffing and so forth, and but you're involved with a whole bunch of other on-trend issues like that, like hunger relief and so on. Yeah. Tell us some more about some of the things you do. Uh, did you go to Peru? 
I did go to Peru. Um, I went with an organization called CARE, and um, in my free time, I lobby on Capitol Hill on behalf of um, causes that I feel passionate about. Um, I went to Peru, and the topic revolved around malnutrition among young children. And, um, you know, I went to this community where there was 80% malnutrition among the children in that region because they didn't have a proper source of protein. And um, organizations like CARE get involved. You give microloans to women, $100 loans to raise kui, which are guinea pigs, high in protein, and actually really delicious. That's a national dish of uh, uh, yeah. Peru. Yeah. I mean, it's like eating a rabbit. It literally tastes like rabbit meat. Um, and these um, animals live up, they eat alfalfa sprouts. They can only imagine that's such a clean diet that these koi are having. Long story short, in a matter of four years of introducing this one protein source to children, the malnutrition rate changed from 80% to 25% in four years. Oh, wow. But the amazing thing that came out of it was that women that were part of this program now had sustainable business models. They were actually taking this kui outside of being able to have a protein source for their families. They were able to now sell these kui in the market. And so really, at the end of the day, empowering a woman <clears throat> is really breaking the chain, poverty cycle chain. Because when you empower a woman, she has only three things she focuses on. Food on the table for her children, a roof over their head, and an education. And she single-handedly is able to break the cycle of poverty for the next generation. So I'm we, very passionate about those causes. We, we had a very interesting visit when we were, when we were in Peru. And there's a really top chef there who's Gaston, Astrid and Gaston together. Yes, they have, yes, they have yes. Several rest, but... but uh, they 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 took us to a cooking school that he had established. If you if you go south, I think south of Lima, there's a really horrible, ugly, ugly, ugly area around yeah, the port bad. of Peru. But but on the back side of that is a cooking school, and they take like thirty or forty students, and they're all dressed up like like they're top chefs, and mm-hmm. they're really learning everything there is to learn. And it's all cooking. on scholarship. I mean, nobody has to pay, right? Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I don't know who pays. Somebody pays, but they, the students well, Gaston, don't. Well, Gaston, Gaston, Gaston has been sure. so instrumental. Chef Gaston, I met him, and, you know, has been so instrumental in bringing indigenous uh, ingredients to light and helping farmers because, you know, Peru grows... 4,000 out of the 5,000 varieties of potatoes that grow in the world. Yeah. And yet, Peruvians were only eating the red and the white potatoes. Meanwhile, there's a plethora. I mean, every potato variety in Peru is so delicious. Mm. So what he does is he takes all these indigenous ingredients and puts it on his menu. And he was able to change people's perceptions of what they should be eating. And so local Peruvians started eating these indigenous potatoes, and that's how so many of the farmers, potato farmers, were able to actually have sustainable livelihoods because chefs like Gaston started showing people the importance of eating um, indigenous ingredients. 
Well, you know, the, the in program that impressed the most, uh, impressed me the most, was the seed exchange thing where they send the seeds from that center, the potato um, yes. museum or whatever it is, all over the world and have scientists working on um, what deficiencies are in a all potato diet. And one of them happens to be zinc. And they're mm-hmm. trying to breed in zinc. And there's something else that's, that potatoes are short of. I think, I think it's iron, too. I think it's iron as well. Though. Iron. So uh, most of the deficiencies in nutrition then come from that since they eat so many potatoes. But um, somebody just wrote a book about you can trace the whole history of civilization by plotting the history of the potato. Did you ever hear that? No, I did not. I it all starts in Lima <laughs> or okay. in the Andes. It all starts in the Andes. I mean, if it has to do with potatoes, I would assume it would start in Peru. Yeah, right. Now, one more thing is uh, tell us about your third space. So I, you know, realized really early on in my career that um, I was not cut out to be a restauranter. I couldn't do a traditional restaurant. I really, my quality of life was compromised with the hours that I was working. And so oh, I, I think it's space. horrible. I had one. Yeah. I built a space called a third space. In my mind's eye, I envisioned my perfect kitchen. I built my perfect studio kitchen. And um, I have no set hours. I decide when I want to have a dinner. I put it up on my social media channels, and it's all prepaid before people sit down. The menu is set by me. There's no Nobody gets to come here and decide what they want to eat. They eat what I serve. Um, and I change it up. I do high teas here. I have a market space. We do florals here. So it really allows me the luxury to be in the food world without having the hours that are dictated by running a restaurant. I'm able to cook at my pace and really have a joyful experience at work because it's not a traditional restaurant space. Well, it sounds like exactly what somebody like you should be doing. And I want to ask you one more thing is because you seem to be a chef who thinks seriously and deeply about um, issues. And uh, um, there are so many issues going on today. Um, The whole food scene, I think, is different, and I don't think it will ever go back to the way it was. What do you think? Um, I I don't believe it will either. And um, I think it's time for chefs to start thinking out of the box and reinventing themselves. And, you know, the model that I have with the third space worked really well during this time for me. Um, I was able to pivot to an all-takeout model, and it's worked fantastic. So I think that this is a time of tremendous growth for the restaurant Mm -hmm. industry where we have to make the hard decisions of, you know, having – sustainable business establishments that are actually financially viable, not just for the people that own the establishments, but for the people that work in it as well. Yes. So um, this is a time of tremendous change, and I I think that a lot of chefs will, um, they will stand up to this challenge, and I think they will come out of it on the other side 
um, better than we were before. Yeah, well, I mean, I see institutions all around us changing. I mean, the, the uh, world's 50 best restaurants has decided that there's more to be done for the industry than just list good restaurants around the world. You know, uh, the beard yes. people they closed down except for research. For this year and next, yep. Yep, and uh, the what else we have the. Um, of who's uh, there's another one that oh the yeah the specialty food people um, yep. are, are going into different sort of innovation. I think it's a, it is to, a period of growth. It's not even a sustainable model in the first place. You know the restaurant industry. It's not even like you can sustain yourself for a week without. Like literally, it's a week to week. <laughs> so mm-hmm. having to go such extended periods of time without knowing. Um, who's walking in your door, or if someone will walk in your door. It's impossible to sustain those models of business. So this is definitely a time of reinvention to figure out what is financially sustainable in the food world and how can we make this an equitable industry for everybody that's involved in it. Let's hope they figure out something really fast that people can pay their rent and put food on the table. Anyhow, Asha Gomez, as always, it's wonderful talking to you. And uh, your, your new book is wonderful called, listeners, I Cook in Color, Bright Flavors from My Kitchen and Around the World. And um, it's, I, I have a list now of things I'm going to make that I've never made before. And I've been cooking for a long time. <laughs> so get Thank the book. You. That means so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest is going to transport you to an Afghan kitchen. I don't know if you expected that or not, but it's certainly an exciting um, look into, uh, the, I guess, a lot of things that we don't know about. Now, now you pronounce her name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's tricky, um, tricky Dur- lady. Durkani Ayubi. And, and, and some really fascinating stuff. There's good, so you, good so you, recipes. So you to fiddle around with in your kitchen. So here's Dirk. <laughs> I want to welcome Dirkane Ayubi from Adelaide to <laughs> from her restaurant and, and cookbook Parwana uh, to on the menu. Um, it's such a treat to talk to you. Even though we lived in Australia, I always every time we interview somebody uh, in from our U.S. to Australia, it surprises me about this time zone, you're having breakfast and we're heading towards dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good morning from my end. Thanks so good much. Good morning and, and spring and we're heading into winter. Um, <laughs> yes. This cookbook is uh, truly amazing. Now, I mean, I, you've gotten so many fabulous critiques and, and recommendations mm-hmm. for it. So I was, I was hyped to get it. 
but it's even more amazing than I thought. And it tells me how little I know about Afghanistan, its history, its culture, and its food. And it's, it's a beautiful photograph book, too. Um, your oh, subtitle you is Recipes and Stories from an Afghan Kitchen. And mm-hmm. uh, you're going to have to help here because it's so dense. I mean, there's so much I didn't know about mm. Afghanistan, anything. Um, yeah. Start out with, like, tell us about how you have been got to Adelaide, Australia, from mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Sure, sure. Um, well, and I think you're picking up on something that was really important to me before um, I even started to write this book, um, just when the prospect of this book came up. I realized that so many people know so little about Afghanistan and what they do know is kind of trapped in these ideas of violence and negativity. Um, war, but, war you know, and have tyranny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, having been born there and having my ancestry and my family history from there, um, you know, I'm well aware that there's so much more to the story of Afghanistan. And I just saw this as a really, um, you know, to write this cookbook to capture my mum's um, recipes and, you know, recipes that have been passed down to her from generations. Um, that, you know, hand in hand with that was an, a chance to tell a much more intricate and rich story of Afghanistan. And um, that's why it was really special for me to even, um, you know, work with my family to put this book together. Um, so my family left Adelaide, uh, sorry, Afghanistan in the mid-1980s, and that was the time of the Cold War um, playing out in Afghanistan, so the tensions between um, Soviet Russia and the US were playing out um, on Afghan soil, um, and so right, it was right, just a right. time of, yeah, that's right, there was, it was just a time of um, violence and disappearances, and the country was really heading into a breakdown of its own kind of political structures um, and stability. And it was a time when people in my extended family were just disappearing or going missing and you would never hear from them again. Um, And so it was a time when there was communist rule in Afghanistan and in opposition to that communism, this kind of different ideology of a very fundamental version of Islam was emerging that had never been part of the country's history. Um, So really it was that kind of tension that was creating a lot of um, uncertainty for people and that's when a lot of Afghan people left the country. Um, And the Afghan diaspora is huge living around the world Um, and so that's when my family left. My, My sisters and I, we were all under the age of... Um, 10 when my parents decided we needed to leave yeah and there were four of us so mum and dad and all of us we crossed the border from Afghanistan into Pakistan where we stayed in a refugee camp for a year or so and then we were just fortunate enough to be accepted on humanitarian grounds um, into Australia by 1987. Well now we our best friend um, one of our best friends uh, lived in uh, in Kabul um, mm-hmm. just before. Let's see, she we left Australia in seventy three and seventy two, and, mm-hmm. and, and um, they decided when their passports were confiscated, uh, she mm-hmm. my, my friend and her husband to leave 
Um, yeah. But by, before that, um, she had sent me her address and ashes to visit them in Kabul, which we didn't mm. do. But I think that's why I was in Los Angeles at LAX airport, and they strip-searched mm. me because I had her address with Kabul in my address book. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, in that would not have been the time we to have the address in the book. <laughs> but but, but no, I mean, this was way, way before you left, and already she said it was yeah, just right. ghastly. Ghastly. We should tell sure. you, however, that this, this, this friend and her husband, who was English, when, when they left Afghanistan, they went to West Africa to the town of Timbuktu. Yeah. Yeah, right. So they were adventurous people. Yeah, right. Well, let's get back, back to uh, part one. So you end up in Adelaide, Australia. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, mm-hmm. I have to say that um, from my experience living in Australia, um, the Australians were not particularly uh, welcoming to people who were not um, Australian. <laughs> It wasn't even a matter of brown or white. I mean, Peter was English, and still, our friends, if they had a few drinks, would start using these awful names and things. This had to be a tough entry to your family in Adelaide, although it is a university town. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, you know, to be honest, when my family first kind of arrived, People didn't know much about Afghanistan and um, it was almost an unheard of country, which when you think about it now because of the war on terror and all the Islamophobia and that kind of thing, um, that seems so almost unimaginable. But when we were growing up as kids, um, you know, we kind of, we had all the difficulties of starting again, you know, being displaced and not having much at all and, you know, parents having to learn the language again and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we just kind of had to try and make things work for ourselves. Um, and my sisters and I grew up in Australia in the school system here and that kind of thing. So our adjustment was um, probably a lot easier than it might have been for my parents, you know, who um, had yes. to make that transition into learning English and still having an accent and being a bit more visibly, I suppose, foreign. Um, but overall, our experience with people locally was was lovely. You know, people were helpful um, and that kind of thing. And I'm sure there's, there's always been incidents of... Um, I guess, racism or rejection. And that yeah, kind of thing. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, the, what politics has created today has a lot to answer for, like the systems it's normalised. But certainly for us growing up, um, you know, we had our own struggles to deal with. We had to make that adjustment between two cultures and it wasn't always easy. No, and no. Well, let's start with give, give us what the real meaning in um, uh, in um, Farsi is a parwana. Yeah, parwana means butterfly, um, and for us, when we chose the name parwana about eleven years ago when we first opened our restaurant. It was because it reminded mum and dad of a restaurant um, that they all used to love and frequent when they were kind of growing up and living in Kabul. Um, And also we just loved the sound of the word. You know, it's a beautiful word and everyone can say it quite easily. So we were just conscious um, 
of, of that. Um, and now, 11 years later, I feel like it's taken on different significance, you know, other, our attachment to food as a family and how we've expressed ourselves through food has been key to, you know, our evolution and transformation, you know, just like a butterfly. <laughs> and so I feel like it's taken on deeper significance for us, definitely. Now, you, you come from a family of very fine cooks, and you come yeah. from a culture that, I mean, it mm. was uh, your cultural, the history you put in your book is mm. so complex. I'm not sure I still grasp the whole thing. Uh, not mm. only were you a fixture in the spice route, but it was a mm. corridor country, and so you have influences from all over the world, all the great kingdoms. That's right. That's right. So that was, yeah, that was one of the things that was really important for me to share with our book because, I mean, people, for example, who haven't tried Afghan food, who come into our restaurants and who have the food, um, you know, they there's so many times you might have somebody come in a skeptic because they've never heard of it or never tried it and they'll leave just melting because they love it, right? And so I really wanted to think about what that was. And why so many people just found the food so palatable and delicious. And I realized that so much of Afghan food um, that's stamped into the identity of the cuisine is this long human history of interconnection and exchange. And I just thought that was a really beautiful parallel for, you know, what we need to kind of unearth again about ourselves. You know, we, we haven't we haven't kind of unfolded as these disparate cultures. We've unfolded through thousands of years of history of exchange. And Afghanistan at the heart of the Silk Road, that really influences its culture and its cuisine to this day. So, yeah, the spices that are in our food, you know, they've come through from the Spice Islands and India um, into Afghanistan. So you've got things like cumin, turmeric, cinnamon, um, cardamom, those kind of flavors used in our food. But then at the same time, it's melded with this influence that comes through from Asia, from China and Mongolia with like rice as a staple and hand-rolled dumplings and noodles as a key part of our cuisine. And the dumplings. Yeah, and I just, I, we have a, um, um, our, our nephew married a Mongolian woman, and uh, she uh-huh. makes dumplings stuffed with the camel's meat rabbit. It's dried. Well, the big the big feature is the dried camel. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I've never tried that. <laughs> it's hard to get. Yeah, it's very good exercise for the jaw. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, now, you know, your your mother's recipes are strong in this book, right? Your mother was a... Sorry, and say that again? Your mother is an extraordinary cook, mm. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so these are all my mum's recipes, and my mum is definitely um, a huge influence of the, of the restaurants and how they even came to be. So my mum, from when she was a small girl, um, so her mother passed away when her and her siblings were all very young. So from the age of about four onwards, she was raised very lovingly by a father who kind of um, encouraged all of them to pursue um, their love and their passions. And so for my mum, that was cooking and she just had this natural inclination towards it so she would be allowed into the kitchens as you know people were preparing meals and she kind of absorbed 
all the ways and the flavors of how um, Afghan food is put together. And as she grew up, you know, she loved cooking and she just was a natural talent at it as well. And then when we came to Australia, um, you know, she would cook for uh, community kind of functions or people would ask her to cook for a certain event. And we just realized how much people loved the food. And so we thought, you know, what a great opportunity to share um, something of our history and something that's been passed down to my mum through generations. So her her mother and her grandmother, so and her mother, her great grandmother before that, they all kind of had this um, love for cooking and passed that down to their children successively. Um, and so, yeah, that very same kind of passion for it is now shared here in our new home in Adelaide and passed on to us as children as well. And when you become is there a community? Of, is there an Afghan community in Adelaide? Yeah, yeah. So when we first arrived in in Adelaide, um, which was in the late '80s, the community was a lot smaller, but um, it's definitely grown a lot. And yeah, the community here now is in the thousands. And Adelaide's a small town, so that's a pretty big that's Afghan amazing, community. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've been in we've been in Adelaide a couple of times. Tell, tell, tell me where your restaurants are physically in the city. Yeah, sure, sure. So we have one lunchtime spot um, in the east end of the city, um, just on a little laneway called Ebenezer Place. Um, and then we also have our um, first restaurant that we opened, Parwana. Um, which is west of the city towards the beach, but just very close to the city still, just about five minutes out of the city on Henley Beach Road. And then my sister does sweets um, at a kind of, it's called a place called Plant Four, um, which is just kind of uh, northwest, I think. Um, and, yeah, she serves up really delicious Afghan-inspired sweets there. Oh, and the sweets, that's another whole... That one sweet you have is very much like the Italian cannoli. You know, it has the oh, pastry. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, yeah Somewhere in our collection of photographs, our digital photographs, there's a picture of Anne sitting on the beach. Really? In, in Adelaide. I don't remember that at all. No, I remember oh. taking the picture. I remember what it looks like. Oh, how lovely. The only, the, only th- yes. the only thing I don't remember is where the picture is. <laughs> oh, that's quite funny. Now, tell oh, yeah. me this. Just, like, do, like, a laundry list. I mean, you don't have to be totally um, exhaustive in it, but some of the cultural influences in Afghanistani cuisine. Sure. So there's a very strong kind of um, Persian influence in the food. There's a strong Indian influence. Um, definitely that strong um, Asian connection um, to the food from China and Mongolia. Um, and, you know, it all fuses together with um, indigenous native ingredients and traditions to create something that, is familiar to lots of people, um, but then very unique because of the proportions of spices used and kind of balancing everything out with a lot of yogurt and fresh yeah, lots of yogurt and herbs. Mm. So, and it's yeah, a rice-based like, cuisine too. There's a lot yeah, of rice. Absolutely. Yeah, rice is a staple of um, 
any Afghan spread. Um, and it kind of varies according to season. So in winter, you would have like a higher calorie sticky rice with um, some meat through it, if you could. Um, but rice, and then we've got these other rice dishes. They're always amazingly decorated with, you know, native kind of fruits and um, uh, things like sultanas and nuts. Nuts are a huge kind of part of what's grown in Afghanistan. Um, and they all kind of blend together in the rice dishes. Um, and the process for making the rice is quite intricate, but you end up with rice that is just stunning. Yeah, why why is that so complicated? I mean, there is, you have a lot of recipes for how to properly do rice. Um, I think, you know, every culture has a dish or um, something that kind of typifies, signifies, um, encapsulates what, kind of skill is needed to, you know, kind of master that cuisine. And for Afghans, it's definitely rice. Rice is grown um, in the region. Um, and also, it, um, I guess, forms the energy basis for the food. So the carb component in Afghan cuisine comes from rice. Um, and I think because Afghans love their artistry and they're so connected to the aesthetics of how things look, which I think is a big surprise for a lot of people too. <laughs> well, you know, you know this stuff's beautiful, beautiful, but the photographs are beautiful too that you've used too. Yeah, thank you. We had some. We were so privileged to work with some um, people. Alicia Taylor was a photographer, and a woman named Deb Kalopa did the food styling alongside, you know, my sister and my mum, and they just had uh, such a passion for what they were doing, and the the photography really shone definitely. Now, I mean, you share so many different um, different um, attributes or characteristics mm. of your cuisine because of all the different mm. influences. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think is distinctively Afghanistanis? Mm. Afghanistanis. Yeah. You know what an Afghan, um, that's the word. <laughs> Afghan, Afghan, yes, Afghan. Um, well, I think Distinctively Afghan is that um, the way what is so everyone who speaks about visiting an Afghan family or you know maybe people that have visited Afghanistan um, back in the 60s and 70s they will speak about the huge kind of amount of hospitality they've received and um, you know for Afghans food isn't just about eating the food there's a whole kind of um, culture of communality around the preparation of the food to so things like the dumplings and stuffed flatbreads, for example, and even preparing the toppings for rice dishes. They're all things that people would do together. You know, so there's this bonding and communality in the preparation of the food. And then there's this huge element of hospitality um, surrounding Afghan food. So you know, that's ingrained in it because of its history where so many different kind of traders or people who um, have like some sort of spiritual revelations are passing through the area. And, you know, as a host, you would want to, these people to sit and be your guests. And Afghans have that ingrained in them to this day. Um, and another really distinctive part of Afghan cuisine is, you know, all of these kind of dishes that are melded together we don't ever really have a dish on its own. Um, an Afghan meal is a spread. So, you know, it's rice with these meats or curries, vegetables, fresh vegetables, naans, you know, pickles, yogurts, everything on the side. And it all kind of comes together to make an Afghan meal. 
but it's rather remarkable to tell you the truth. Um, yeah. You went back, you and, and uh, some, uh, siblings and cousins and whatnot went mm-hmm. back. Uh, mm-hmm. When was it to Afghanistan? Um, so the first time we went back since we had all left as small children was in 2012. Um, and it was just a remarkable um, homecoming that I didn't expect. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'd never, I was born there, but, you know, my family left. I wasn't even one when we crossed the border. And um, I just wasn't expecting this deep connection that I felt to the country and to the people. And, um, you know, Afghanistan is just a stunning country and it's kind of parts of it is bordered by the Hindu Kush mountains to one side and it's very lush and green. So we went, we got there in spring and so you just see all this green, these rolling valleys and lots of like freshwater creeks and stuff, lakes running through. And, you know, we were just astounded by um, the beauty of it. And, you know, it's not to say by that point, especially there was definitely poverty and you could see the effects of violence and war. Um, but I just got so connected to who I was because I understood um, myself, my parents, the social mannerisms, the, the culture so much more. So it was a very shifting experience. Well, then you conclude your book with um, something about what's next. Why don't you tell us your conclusions? I think that especially in the world today, um, there's just so much uncertainty. Um, But one of the key things, and, you know, that's so true for Afghanistan as well, Um, but, you know, things are improving. There are so many people within the country focused on, you know, educating women and um, giving young girls a chance and trying to kind of stabilise the region. But, you know, who knows, especially in a world... um, facing the challenges that we are collectively facing oh, today. Yeah. But I think my conclusion definitely came from the I, this concept that, you know, just like what is steeped and kind of marked in Afghan food, um, we're all dependent on each other and we've kind of evolved in connection with each other. And in the same way, our futures depend on our cooperation and unearthing these interconnections and um, codependencies, again, you know, for the natural universe um, and for the peace and stability um, of our societies. So I think there's really prescient lessons in um, the history of Afghanistan that are so apt for what we need to uncover about ourselves again today. And I really do hope that the narrative of Afghanistan moves beyond just this violence of the last few decades um, into something that acknowledges the beauty of its interconnections. Well, if, if you're a, a, a states person <laughs> for, for, oh. for this culture and the future and the culture and for all of us, I think mm. it bodes well. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this book and, uh, and talking to you. Thank you so much. In the meantime, listeners around the world, when you are going down under, remember that one of the most charming cities in the whole of the country of Australia is Adelaide, (laughs) and you can go get some Afghan tucker at the same time. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been so lovely to speak. 
you you actually did a great job of, of introducing to that that people are going to need to pour over this because it's an amazing um, history um, and transformation of, of culture. Um, yeah, yes. I, I yeah I mean I. I remember studying Zoroastrianism, and I don't think anybody yes. mentioned Afghanistan. Yeah, that not that um, interesting? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, it started you know, there. that would be the birthplace of it. Like, in, if not there, just in that region, Balkh, which is uh, Bactria, which is modern-day Balkh, you know, like that's basically the heartland of Zoroastrianism. And you're yes. right, you know, our kind of claims to those kinds of things have been totally erased. And I think that's just so sad, not because of any kind of exceptionalism or superiority or whatever that you would claim with it, but just because people just get totally erased from global history, right? And mm-hmm. I just wanted to write this history from Afghan eyes and put Afghanistan kind of at the heart of what was happening as global events were unfolding. And it's just useful for all of us to know that, you know, people have their histories and their stories and they're equally important yes well i think you've mm-hmm. done an extraordinary job of, of oh doing thank this. you so much do you, a question do you think people will cook from this book oh i've had so many people cooking from all around the world and okay. sending photos and yeah and the thing is that um the recipes are relatively straightforward and we try yeah, to write are. them so they were just really kind of simple and easy for people to follow and the food that people are making has been stunning, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I could tackle curry chickpeas. I could do that one. <laughs> yes, yes. No, you should have a try. Um, I think, yeah, you, you'll do great, I'm sure. Um, well, you're, you're very... So, we hope you enjoyed this... Right, it's an, an exotic, awesome exo- exotic yes. program. And, you know, will help you uh, satisfy your travel itch in a time where you should all be staying safe at home. And uh, I think we'll all be happy to turn the page from 2020 to 2021, which will be our next stay-at-home holiday. So celebrate at home, cozy up with your champagne or whatever you want. And, of course, we'll have more fascinating stuff about the world of food, wine, and travel, and on the menu radio, just like we always do. So be sure to join us, same time, same place. Bye-bye.